Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 7, Half-Human Mini-Analysis. Christmas, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the Museum of Merry Monsters, Nathan Marchand. Here on the island, everyone has hung their kaiju-sized stockings with care in the hopes that St. Nicholas soon will be here. Yes, Jimmy, I'm aware it doesn't rhyme, but it would have been weird and grammatically incorrect if... Oh, never mind. Regardless, we're expecting Santa to fly by soon. Let's just hope Rodan doesn't try to eat him like he did last year. You put Keylock monster control devices in your drones to keep that from happening? Are you sure you should be messing with tech the island scientists haven't figured out in 20 years? It's all you have with the orca broken? Oi. My apologies to the children of the world if you don't have any gifts under your tree. Speaking of gifts, this episode is my gift to you, listeners. It's a mini-analysis of a film that was pushed to the back of the vault by Toho because, much like Disney with Song of the South, they'd rather forget it existed. It's so far back in the vault, in fact, it took Goji-kun and Bro-Kong, the podcast mascots and possibly Godzilla and Kong's little brothers, forever to find it for me to watch. It was director Shiro Honda's first film after the original Godzilla and starred Akira Takarada and Momoko Kochi, but the studio has tried to bury it since its release in 1955, making it one of Toho's rarest and most infamous films. I'm, of course, talking about Half Human, or as it was called in Japan, Jujin Yuki Otoku, literally Beastman Snowman. I'll be analyzing the original Japanese cut and not the awful American re-edit. Seriously, it makes the 1956 King of the Monsters look like a Kurosawa film by comparison. Since most of these early minisodes are meant to allow me to discuss films covered on my previous podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio, in my absence, I'll leave a link to the KVR episode, along with a bibliography of my sources, in the show notes, since this is meant to be a supplement to that episode. I originally researched this film as part of an independent study I did in grad school on Oshiro Honda. Anyway, for those who haven't seen Half Human, which I assume is many of you, the story draws from both Godzilla and 1933's King Kong. A group of students vacationing in the Japanese Alps on New Year's Day, I might add, so it sort of makes sense to discuss it on Christmas, are shocked to find two of their friends were killed and one of them missing after what appears to be a huge animal attacked their cabin. They return several months later with a professor to investigate and soon discover the abominable snowman lives in these mountains with his son. Uh, snowboy? The snowman is worshipped by a savage inbred tribe who seem to be the ones attacking the people who come to the mountains. Poachers soon learn of the snowman's existence and attempt to capture him for a circus. In the middle of all this is Chica, a tribeswoman who acts as something of a liaison between the protagonist and the savages. <laughs> yes, Jimmy, unlike in the previous episode, this time I'm actually talking about a Bumble and not the Kong who looks like a Bumble from King Kong Escapes. By the way, listeners, I've been told by Monster Island's lead scientist, Dr. Yoshida, that the snowman and snowboy, well... He's more like Snow Teen now, I guess. Do live here. They mostly hide in their little cave and keep to themselves, which is understandable given that the island is mostly inhabited by kaiju and they don't want to get stepped on. <laughs> you said it, Jimmy. It is easier to see them than their movie. Speaking of which, 
As would happen nearly 20 years later with 1974's Prophecies of Nostradamus, Half Human was banned by Toho because its depiction of the mountain tribe was seen as insensitive, particularly by Japanese indigenous people groups such as the Barakuman and the Ainu. The former will be discussed in a future minisode. In fact, the word associated with such groups is dropped by Professor Koizumi when he says, quote, First the abominable snowman, now these mysterious Buraku. What have we gotten ourselves into? By this logic, as Peter H. Brothers argues in his book Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, quote, None of John Ford's westerns should be available for viewing today due to their unsympathetic depiction of Native American Indians. But as Adam Noyes points out in his YouTube video review of this film, quote, Japan is a lot more liberal than the United States. Ironically, this unflattering and stereotypical portrayal of indigenous people, while indicative of its time, caused no controversy when the film was released. Japan is a country that has long prided itself in its homogeneity, but this is a narrative that came at the expense of people like the Ainu. The Ainu people are generally defined by the Japanese as descendants of the Ainu culture that began on Hokkaido, the northernmost island of the Japanese archipelago in the 13th and 14th centuries through the mid-19th century when the Yamato people formally colonized the island. However, it is believed humans first arrived on Hokkaido 20,000 years ago from Siberia, where they eventually established a, quote, culture of hunting, foraging, and fishing, as Jude Isabella said. The name Ainu simply means human. The Ainu and the Japanese fought a series of wars between the 15th and 18th centuries, causing such bad blood that the Japanese changed the island's name from Izo to Hokkaido when they colonized it. In 1899, amidst the Meiji Restoration, the Japanese government annexed Hokkaido and passed the Hokkaido Former Aborigine Protection Act, which labeled the Ainu as, well, former Aborigines, in an effort to force them to assimilate into Japanese culture. This ban remained in effect until 1997, when the Ainu Culture Promotion and Dissemination of Information Concerning Ainu Traditions Act was passed. There's a mouthful for you. This was spearheaded by Shigeru Kayano, the first Ainu representative elected to the Diet. The government officially recognized the Ainu as Japan's indigenous people in 2008. Today, there are varying estimates for how many Ainu live in Japan, but most are around 25,000, with some as high as 200,000. Yes, it is a huge disparity in estimates, but it's what my sources said. Anyway, the parallels between the Ainu and half-human mountain tribe are striking. When Chika first appears standing outside the cabin, she is wearing a thick fur coat, which frightens one of the female students. Not only does this foreshadow the snowman, it could be seen as a reference to the Ainu's reference for bears. Like many traditional Japanese, the Ainu are animists who believe all living things are inhabited by spirits called kamui. My apologies if I mispronounce any Japanese and Ainu words this episode. Chief among their many gods is Kim Un Kamui, or the god of bears and mountains. While the Ainu believe all animals are manifestations of gods on earth, the bear is the, quote, head of the gods. The Ainu tradition of Lotame involves raising a bear cub as if it were a child and then sacrificing it to release the Kamui because it has come of age. The film turns this belief that the bear is the quote-unquote head of the gods on its ear when a bear corpse is found by the protagonist, and when the snowman is later seen carrying what appears to be a bear over his shoulders. The implication is that the snowman is strong enough to kill these animals. It is no surprise, then, that Chika's tribe would worship the snowman and call it Master, since it has proved that it is the largest and most powerful creature on the mountain. The Grand Elder of the village even charges Chika with going to the snowman's cave to leave him animal carcasses, which can be seen as them placating their god. Really, Jimmy? You'd quote Gozer at the snowman? I have a feeling it'd end the same way for you as it did for Ray's stance. Anyway, the tribe also resembles the Ainu in physical appearance minus the deformities. 
The Ainu stand out physically as an ethnic group from the Japanese with their light skin, stout frames, deep-set eyes with a European shape, and thick wavy hair. Ainu men and women keep their hair shoulder length, and men do not shave after a certain age, so they have full beards. Some have even theorized that full-blooded Ainu have blue eyes and brown hair. Because of this, it was proposed that they were of Caucasian descent, but recent dental morphology and fingerprinting has proven the Ainu are actually mongoloid. In Half-Human, the village's Grand Elder does fit this description with his long hair and full beard, although he is clearly played by a Japanese actor. The other villages lack such hair and beards, but aside from Chika, the Grand Elder is the most prominent member of their tribe seen in the film, so he comes to represent the tribe for the audience. Sadly, it is a problematic image as he is abusive and xenophobic. In fact, the Ainu word for the ethnic Japanese is wajin, which means colonizer. Or as one Ainu told a researcher, people whom one cannot trust. The houses in the mountain tribe's village look much like a kisei or kisie in traditional Ainu communities, which were called kotans. These were usually made of kogan grasses, bamboo grasses, and barks, among other things. Each kotan had a quote-unquote headman. In the film's case, it was the Grand Elder. Ainu families gathered around a central hearth in each house. Such a hearth is seen when Takeshi Ejima awakens after being found by Chika at the bottom of a ravine. Despite these similarities, there are major differences between the Ainu and this keyword fictitious tribe. For one thing, the film takes place in the Japanese Alps near Nagano in central Honshu, which is far southwest of Hokkaido. However, there is some evidence that Ainu subgroups did reach that far. This shift in location could be Honda's way of saying the Ainu, as Japan's indigenous people, are central to the nation not only geographically, but socially and morally as well. However, it could also be seen as a way to deflect possible comparisons between the tribe and the Ainu. Chika lacks the mouth tattooing given to Ainu women to signify their adulthood. While the tribe's superstitions do resemble the traditional Ainu religion, the film does not give enough details to draw a one-to-one -one comparison between the belief systems. The snowman is never described as a kamui, or god, but as the master, which is not in line with Ainu religion. Sorry, Jimmy. While Honda's films usually reflect a non-judgmental worldview, it is easy to see why Toho was concerned indigenous people groups in Japan would boycott this film, but it can, and should, be interpreted more positively. Brothers argues in Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, quote, If Honda's intent was to shame those responsible for such bigotry, he succeeded better than he could ever know. In fact, as Noya suggests in his video review, the natives might be Honda's commentary not on the Ainu or other indigenous peoples, but on pre-war Japan. He says, quote, The film doesn't portray the natives as bad guys per se, but it depicts them as driven to madness by their beliefs of isolation. I believe that could be a sure Honda politics coming through, because he was very much a pacifist and believed in the world ultimately coming together to help each other in a time of crisis, while these natives are very isolationist, and they're very disgusting, they're very deformed, and he believes that's what Japan maybe was before World War II and before the war ended, end quote. Essentially, Honda could be saying Japan's wartime militarism was a form of tribalism. This reframes the story as an indictment of the very people who were oppressing the Ainu. Kurosawa said he and Honda both believed it would have been, quote, a disaster if Japan won the war, if the incompetence in the military stayed in power, end quote going on to say it would have, quote, driven this country into a deeper mess, end quote. The Japanese military was full of fanatics who were waging a holy war to create a pan-Asian empire. 
Japan was a xenophobic nation despite the westernizations of the Meiji era, and it was this fanaticism that ultimately drove the country to ruin in the later years of the war. This is reflected in the tribe's attitude toward outsiders, which contrasts with Chika, who is curious about the outside world and saves one of the students, as I mentioned. This contrast may explain why she is inexplicably beautiful, kind, and intelligent compared to her kinsmen. It was a visual way to differentiate her with her tribe, and thereby contrasting the war-weary Japanese with the military fanatics. The Grand Elder whips Chika as punishment for violating the tribe's customs, which was a common practice in Imperial Japan's military. Perhaps then, much as Honda did with Godzilla, the snowman's fiery rampage through the native's village is meant to echo the destruction brought upon Japan during the war. Problem with this interpretation is it becomes bizarre if extended to the snowman and snowboy. Who, or what, do they represent if the tribe is a commentary on pre-war Japan? As the master worshipped by the natives, is the snowman then supposed to be Emperor Hirohito or Emperor Showa? Emperor worship was a key facet of state Shinto from the Meiji Restoration to World War II. By extension, it could be argued, this makes the snowboy Hirohito's son and successor Akihito. But Akihito was not killed, unlike the snowboy, let alone by outsiders. Jimmy, I've said before that just because a monster dies in a movie doesn't mean he isn't here on the island. No, the island isn't the afterlife for monsters. What do you think our show is, Lost? <sighs> As I was saying, it also was not the emperor who devastated the people like the snowman does to the tribe. In fact, Hirohito was a quiet, thoughtful man and not prone to rage. If anything, the snowboy humanizes the snowman, making him more of a character and less of a monster. Such a thing was almost unheard of at the time, especially in American monster films. The snowman and snowboy, like how the Japanese people saw themselves at the end of the war, were victimized by outsiders. The poachers seek to capture and exploit the snowman and snowboy, which not only justifies the tribe's perception of outsiders, it may reflect Japanese culture as a whole, a theme Honda would return to in his alien invasion films. I know you can't wait for those, Jimmy. You remind me every day. Oy. Where was I? Ah, oh, yes. This perception is balanced out by the protagonists who want to help the creatures. All this to say, while it is certainly possible pre-war Japan influenced Honda with his portrayal of the tribe in Half-Human, this interpretation breaks down when extended to other aspects of the film. Ultimately, as was common with Honda's films, Half-Human is, as Steve Reifel and Ed Godachewski say in Ashiro Honda, A Life in Film, a, quote, story of a clash between the modern world and the traditional culture with disastrous results, end quote. While Brothers says, quote, viewings of the film are as rare as sightings of the abominable snowman himself, end quote, it is arguably an underrated and misunderstood classic waiting to be rediscovered. Despite its possible and sensitive portrayal of the mountain tribe, it addresses serious ongoing societal issues faced by a Japan in a historical transition. That'd be great, but I doubt even Criterion has the clout to get this film officially released. Besides, I can think of a few other Honda films I'd like to see them add to their collection first. And now for the bow on top of this audio gift for you listeners, I'm going to share our first listener feedback submissions. Normally, I'd wait for them to accumulate enough that I could dedicate an entire mini-sode to them, but I simply couldn't wait on these. Before I get to the letters, I wanted to let everyone know we've received our first five-star reviews on iTunes. Thank you! 
And in the spirit of the season, I'm having a drawing for several copies of my kaiju novella Destroyer. There's a link in the show notes to the blog with all the details. Anyway, we have two letters. Count them two in the MIFV inbox. Our first one comes to us from Luke Giaconetti, host of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. He writes, Nathan and Jimmy too, I guess. Hey man, just listen to the first episode of the Monster Island Film Vault. And after listening, I am certainly looking forward to hearing more. My show, Earth Destruction Directive, is more of a fan show, but I always strive to have it be a researched fan show. So your stated intent of analytic, what I might call film school academic approach to these genre films is right up my alley. I personally think that genre films offer a lot of insight, not only to the film culture where and when they were produced, but to the people who went to see them. Genre films may not win awards, but they made money. If no one went to see them, why make them? So the genre film's ability to appeal to the Joe blogs of the day offers a lot of proverbial meat on the bone to understand the surrounding culture. As for Jimmy, look, personally speaking, I am just glad he survived that battle on Venus, despite, you know, all the evidence to the contrary. If not for Jimmy, we might all be speaking space beast manis right now and wearing revealing vinyl bikinis. <laughs> Sorry, I had to laugh at that. <laughs> so if for nothing else, he deserves at least some measure of respect. Mm, I'll keep working on it. Thanks and looking forward to listening to your various and sundry Kong coverage. Luke Giaconetti. Thank you so much, Luke. It was It's wonderful hearing from you, you being the first feedback we've ever gotten on the show. I have to say, I do appreciate what you said about the show. I work really hard, and Jimmy does too, putting this together and doing the research and all of that. I do be honestly believe that these films need to be appreciated on a deeper level, more than a surface level of, you know, with special effects and suits and monster fights and all of that. There's so much more to them than people give them credit for. And I do want to say, your podcast, I, I have been listening to your podcast for a long time. In fact, back when I was prepping for my first Kaiju podcast, yours was one of the first podcasts I listened to to see what else was out there. And I have to say, you may not believe it, but it's been a little bit influential on how I do things here at the Monster Island Film Vault. As for Jimmy surviving the battle on Venus... Hey, I'm still trying to figure that out too, but he's not talking. And yeah, I'm very glad that we aren't speaking space beast manis right now because let's be honest, it's just a cruder form of Wookiee. We've all seen the Star Wars holiday special. We all know what that sounds like. Dodged a bullet there. So thank you once again, Luke. I look forward to hearing some more from you. Please write in again. Our second bit of feedback comes to us from Becky Smith, or as her friends like to call her, Bex, who hosts the Redeemed Otaku podcast. I've mentioned her show a couple of times before. I've been on several episodes, including several on the Godzilla anime trilogy, and I've also been on a couple of them promoting some of my books. Give the show a listen, if particularly if you are a Christian and an anime fan like myself. So her letter goes as follows. Dear Nathan, Jimmy, and gang... Oh, we're including the co-hosts with this one. That's great. I absolutely love your show. Your easygoing yet studious approach to the movies you cover is fun and exciting to listen to. I love the interaction between the various hosts and characters, including the monsters you harbor on that mystical island. Really, I didn't know the, the island was magic, but we live in a world where magic and science can exist simultaneously, so why not? I am one of those who has not watched the movies you review, yet listen anyways. So I greatly appreciate Jimmy's info dump of the story and plot points. 
As a casual fan with limited access to the movies on your docket, I can easily see myself becoming a hardcore fan if given the chance. I have a running list of movies I need to see that is ever-growing thanks to you all. Anyhow, thank you all for your fabulous show. I look forward to every episode. Roaringly yours, Becky Smith. I love it. I absolutely love it. If you'd like a few pointers about where you can see some of these movies, Bex, I looked it up for you. Both the original King Kong and Son of Kong are available on DVD and Blu-ray and are pretty easy to find. You can also stream them on most streaming platforms, such as Amazon, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and all of that. Obviously, the anime trilogy for Godzilla is on Netflix. As for King Kong Escapes, which was covered in our previous episode, I would recommend tracking down the DVD or Blu-ray that was released by Universal. It's only the dub version, but you know it's uh, it's better than nothing at this point. You can track down the Japanese language version of it if you look hard enough, though. Regardless, I'm glad to hear that the show is so good that even though you haven't seen most of these movies, you are still listening to every single episode. I really appreciate that, and. I hope that we can get more fans like you who will listen to these episodes and then be inspired to look into all of these things. The kaiju and tokusatsu genres are wonderful places for entertainment, but also to explore new and interesting ideas and to look at history and culture, which is what this show is all about. That's why I became the curator of the Film Vault, so that I can share this wealth of knowledge with everyone listening. So thanks once again to Luke and Bex for writing in. Well, this brings us to the end of another minisode. Have you seen Half Human? What'd you think of it? Send in your feedback on this or any other film we've covered so I can read it in a future episode. Details will be in the credits. If you haven't seen Half Human, drag it down. It's worth watching at least once. Next time on the Monster Island Film Vault, we're kicking off 2020 with a big episode on a big movie, the 1976 Dino De Laurentiis-produced remake of King Kong. For that episode, I will be joined by my friend and fellow writer and podcaster, Ben Avery. And then after that, the first minisode of 2020 will be a mini-analysis of the 1956 Toho science fiction epic, The Mysterians. Yes, Jimmy, I know, it's one of your favorites. Now, if you'll excuse me, listeners, the Monster Island Christmas party is about to begin, and all the island's personnel will be there. Nikki Sagusa, Dr. Chujo, and... <gasps> listeners, Jimmy is holding a basket up to the window, and inside are Mothra's twin fairies, the Shobajin! They've come from Infant Island to visit their goddess. Also, with the orca trashed, they'll be translating for everyone as the kaiju sing Christmas carols. <laughs> of course, Ghidorah's favorite carol is We Three Kings. <sighs> Once again, from all of us here on Monster Island, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, 
and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Kowatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!